Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by giving a retraction and an illustration. Uh, the retraction is this. Last week, I was giving an illustration about how poorly I put together IKEA furniture, and I, I said uh, Jim Bertle could tell you uh, I'm mechanically challenged, and uh, that wasn't fair to Jim, right? That misrepresents him. Uh, Jim is far too gracious and too kind to make any negative comments about me or anyone else and how we put together furniture. So, uh, Jim, I'm sorry I... I misrepresented you that way. Uh, he even got picked on in Sunday school. So we, were, we have a Pinewood Derby coming up uh, in October, and I think someone accused him of uh, maybe using a, a different kind of wood. Uh, so Jim fixes almost everything around here, so we really need to be kind to the man. And uh, <laughs> so, Jim, I'm sorry for misrepresenting you last week. That wasn't fair. I'll be more careful uh, in the way I give illustrations, especially about people in our church. Uh, the illustration I wanted to, to start with, though, it's, uh, it's actually from a self-help book. Back in 2006, Rhonda Byrne published a best-selling self-help book called The Secret. She claimed that there were fragments of this cosmic universal secret that had been scattered throughout the world and passed down to us in oral uh, stories, uh, literature, the world religions, and philosophies, and she claimed that she had been able to pull together all the fragments and discover an incredible life-changing revelation, a revelation that could help you, the reader, get all the health and money and, and good relationships and success you've always wanted. And what could be better than that, right? It, it, that sounds like a book that'll sell. It's to date sold over 35 million copies. The problem with her book, though, is that her so-called discovery wasn't a secret and it wasn't new. It was nothing more than the repackaging of an old lie that's been around for a very long time, the lie that if you just use the power of positive thinking, that in time you can achieve almost anything you can imagine. But while Rhonda Byrne's so-called secret wasn't a secret, there had been people teaching that uh, it, for now for hundreds of years, people have been teaching the power of positive thinking. And while it wasn't true, there actually is a, a true secret, a true cosmic universal secret that affects all of history and eternity and every person, including you. This biblical secret won't give you everything that you want because it's going to give you better things than you would ever ask for yourself. Uh, and you'll only be able to live your God-given potential and for the good purposes God created you for uh, to the extent that you live your life in harmony with this secret. And here's the wonderful part about this secret. Paul tells us what the secret is in Ephesians chapter 3. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 3 verse 1. Today we're going to begin our journey through Ephesians 3, and I want to begin by reminding you that the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles were put there later by Christian scholars to use as study aids, and I think they're helpful, but one of the things we always need to keep in mind is that one of the things the chapter divisions can do is they can give a false sense that uh, the old thought from a previous chapter is completely done and the author is beginning a new thought. In Ephesians 3 verse 1, Paul is beginning a new thought, but he's basing that new thought on the last half of chapter 2. And in the last half of chapter 2, Paul did this. He wrote to the Ephesians about their salvation, but he talked about it not so much in individual terms 
but in communal terms. He wrote to inform them that the gospel of Christ not only reconciles us to God, it reconciles us to God's people. Paul reminds the Ephesians that through the work of Christ, they've been connected to one another. So, whether they're man or woman, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, they are one in Christ. And to show the results of being brought together, uh, Paul uses three illustrations. He concluded at the end of chapter 2 with three illustrations to show the result of us having been put together, brought together, and made one in Christ. Uh, he says, first of all, that we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God with all the saints from every period of redemptive history, and we, we enjoy the same rights of citizenship that they have. We are also now true members of God's family. We are His sons and daughters, and we are in a family where we have brothers and sisters to help us on our heavenly journey. We are also, according to Paul, like living stones being put, uh, being placed in interconnected, interdependent ways in a temple, a spiritual temple, that's being built to God where God's presence dwells and is worshiped. And it's based on the way that God has brought Gentiles who were once far off and put them together, grafted them into Israel, and made them part of God's chosen people. It's based on that that Paul then says this in Ephesians 3, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 13 for the sake of context because this is all one thought. Paul says, "'For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles,' And then he just breaks off and says, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, based on all of this, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Please help us now to understand the nature of this mystery that you revealed to Paul and grant that in understanding it, we would learn how by reading the apostles and prophets, we can come to know your goal for all of human history and how we can live in harmony with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this unit of thought by saying, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, and then he just, he just breaks off. He, he quits with the thought he was uh, saying. He interrupts him, his opening thought to then give this long explanation of his ministry as the apostles, apostle to the Gentiles. 
But what was he originally starting to say? Well, I think we get a clue by the first phrase, for this reason. He used that same phrase, for this reason, back in chapter 1, verse 15, to break out into a prayer of praise to God. He's going to use this same phrase in chapter 3, verse 14, to break out into a prayer of praise to God. And so, I believe this is what is happening. Paul uses this phrase to launch into prayers in his letters, uh, and he, he's about to launch into a prayer, but something he says about being the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, in his mind, it causes him to stop the prayer he was about to give and go down a digression where he explains his apostolic ministry. So, the question is, what is it that interrupted Paul? I mean, it's clear that he thinks he needs to explain his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles, okay, but what interrupted his train of thought? We'll look again at verse 1. I think we get the clue. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Remember that Paul is writing this church to the church in Ephesus from imprisonment in Rome. He's, he's in Rome in prison. Paul had been arrested four years earlier uh, on the slanderous accusation of some Jews from Asia Minor who opposed his ministry that he had taken Gentiles past the wall of separation in the temple, uh, and, and he was accused of that. And here's what happened. Paul was in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem with some Gentile believers, and these Jews from Asia Minor who opposed his ministry, they accused him of taking his Gentile companions past that wall. They stirred up a mob against him in the temple, in, in the courtyard of the temple. They stirred up a mob against him, drug him out of the temple, and intended to kill him, but the Roman authorities intervened. Intervened, And when the Roman authorities intervened, they arrested Paul on the suspicion that he was causing trouble, but they allowed him to address the crowd before they led him away to safety. And you can read Paul's address to the crowd in Acts 22. And what's surprising about it is that, remember, this crowd wanted to kill him. What's so surprising is they listen quietly to his defense. They, he, Paul goes on and on and elaborates on uh, his own innocence and what God has uh, called him to do, and they listen to his defense, I think, for a long time up to a point. And the point at which they stop listening is when he says, in essence, that God has called him to go far away to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And at that point, the crowd was filled with rage, and the Roman authorities had to get him out of there just to protect him, just to keep him safe. And if you remember, something very similar to this happened in our Lord's life. Uh, when Jesus began His public ministry, early on in His public ministry, there was this uh, Saturday, there was a Sabbath, where He returned to His hometown of Nazareth, and He taught in their synagogue. Uh, there was an Isaiah scroll there. He opened the Isaiah scroll. He read a messianic prophecy to the people and applied it to Himself. He said that Isaiah is speaking of me when Isaiah said this, and they listened to Him. They were willing to listen to Him teach until He made two observations from the Old Testament. And the observations were these. Number one, in Elijah's day, there was a lot of widows in Israel who were struggling, but God only sent Elijah to help a Phoenician woman. And in Elisha's day, there was a lot of lepers in Israel, but God only sent Elisha to heal one person. An Aramean general, who candidly was actually an enemy of Israel, and he was the one who got healed. And Luke tells us this, 
Uh, all the people in the synagogue, when they heard that, they were filled with rage as they heard these things and got up and drove Jesus out of the city and led Him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw Him down the cliff. You see, the very idea that Gentiles uh, would receive God's grace, it filled some Jews uh, with rage, especially those who rejected Jesus and who rejected Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And so, Paul is in prison precisely for his ministry to the Gentiles. It isn't just that he preached Jesus and he preached God's grace in a way that those Jews from Asia Minor uh, uh, disagreed with. It's also the way he went to the Gentiles. And so, he's specifically, he's in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles, and he knows the Ephesians know this. They know, they know his story. They know why he's in prison. They've received news about him during these four years of imprisonment. And so, Paul knows as he writes this letter, no matter what he writes in this letter, they're going to want to know how is he doing. They're going to want an update on his status. And not only that, I believe Paul anticipates that these Gentile believers could be very discouraged by his situation. I mean, he's the apostle to them, the Gentiles, but not only is he in prison, he's been in prison for like four years, and we still don't know how it's going to work out. It could be very discouraging to them. And so, Paul says in verse 13, therefore, based on this, the privilege of this ministry I have, uh, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Uh, again, I think it could be discouraging to Gentile Christians that the apostle of Christ to the Gentiles is in prison, but Paul says, no, this is, this is actually for your good. And I think we get a, a, a clue about how, Paul, how it is that Paul could say that. Uh, back in verse 1, Paul says, I, the prisoner of Rome… No, actually, that's not what he says. I, the prisoner of Christ. You see, Paul interpreted his circumstances through the sovereignty of Christ. I think he's saying, in effect, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner because I was framed by my Jewish opponents. Uh, I'm a temporary prisoner because that's my Lord's plan. That's the plan that Jesus has for me for now. And it's not going to last forever, but temporarily, this is where He has me. This is not a mistake. And I believe we can actually learn from the Apostle Paul's example here. If you're in Christ this morning, you're right where you belong. Like, some of you in here, you might be wondering, how in the world did I end up in Fredericksburg, Virginia? I just, none of my family's here. Well, how did I end up here? Or others of you, you might not like specific things about your situation. Uh, maybe you're single and you don't enjoy that. Or you're married and you don't enjoy who you're married to right now. Uh, or maybe you don't enjoy what's going on with your health or your career or uh, maybe you're, I mean, this is a, a common to all parents. You're very concerned about your children, especially your adult children. And so, there are things in your circumstances that are hard. And here's the good news. Those hard circumstances could potentially only be temporary. God could move you on from Fredericksburg. He could change your status. He might bring something, a good gift into your life. But whether He does that or not, for right now, He has you where He has you in these circumstances today for a reason. And the Apostle Paul is modeling for us how to interpret the difficult circumstances of our lives by how he interprets the difficulty of being framed and in prison when he should be out doing apostolic ministry. And he still is doing apostolic ministry through his letters and through sending messengers to the churches, but this is how he viewed his own circumstances. 
But Paul's situation, even though he shows us how we can interpret difficult life circumstances, it does raise the question, if being the apostle to the Gentiles is going to land you in prison, what's so great about that ministry? And what Paul is going to do is he's going to spend verses 2 through 12 explaining the heart of his ministry and what a privilege it is, what makes it such a privilege. And as we approach verses 2 through 12, I'm reminded of one of my great academic regrets from college. Uh, When I was in college, there was this New Testament professor that everybody raved about named Doug Bookman. Uh, He's still teaching. You can find him online and listen to his teaching. Everybody raved about Doug Bookman when I was in college. And my freshman, I wasn't a Bible major when I was in college, and and my freshman and sophomore years, I, I didn't really have an opportunity to take a class with him. And then my junior year came, and I passed up a golden opportunity to take a class with him. Um, because I thought that I would be be able to take a class with him my senior year. In the spring, I went to Israel, so that wasn't an option. But what happened was this. The summer before my senior year, Doug Bookman took a job teaching at another university. So I never got to hear Doug Bookman, and it was a regret. But a couple years after I graduated, uh, Brooke and I were members at a Baptist church, and this Baptist church invited Doug Bookman to come and do a four-part series on the Passion Week of Christ. And, uh, and I finally got to hear the great Doug Bookman uh, preach and teach. The problem is, nobody had prepared me for what that was going to… I had just heard he was a good teacher, but I'd never heard him teach. Nobody prepared me to listen to Doug Bookman. Uh, And here's the unique thing about Doug Bookman. He is a very unique individual. He has a very unique gifting from God. No one who has heard the man teach would doubt that he's gifted to teach. And yet, he breaks every rule of homiletics and good public speaking. Whatever outline you're handed, he's not going to follow that. He goes down tangents and rabbit trails spontaneously that seem at the time to not be connected to the main point of the sermon at all. But here's the thing. In fact, on one occasion, or on a couple of occasions, I've actually heard Doug Bookman interrupt himself in the middle of one of his own sentences because presumably he thought the sentence was taking too long to say, and we all followed him, and he could move on to the next thought. But here's the thing about Doug Bookman, okay? Even though he, he has his own eccentricities, Nobody knows. He, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture and of New Testament backgrounds, and he brings all the details together in a way that glorifies Christ in a way no other pastor or teacher can. His rabbit trails are more edifying and informative than most pastors' well-thought-out, manuscripted, prepared sermons. And so, when Doug Bookman goes down a rabbit trail, you better pay attention because there's gold to be found there. Well, I believe we have the same thing happening, same dynamic, in this digression of Paul. See, I feel obligated to label this a digression, but I'm concerned about that because digression has a negative connotation in our context, right? Uh, In America, a digression, uh, we're so in love with efficiency that if a writer uh, digresses to explain the background of something, we're impatient with it. If, If the book of Ephesians, if the letter of Ephesians was given to a modern publisher, the editor would tell Paul to delete the digression and to give us this letter in 500 words or less. In, in Greek, it's a little over 2,000. And, and here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with the way we worship efficiency. That isn't the, that isn't the Holy Spirit's 
plan for us and His intention for this book. And uh, I would say the same thing about the Apostle Paul that I would say about Doug Bookman. When he goes down a rabbit trail, when he starts on a a digression, your ears should perk up because you're going to find solid gold. And the best place to start digging for that gold is with one word that controls the content of this entire digression. It's the word mystery. Uh, um, I'm preaching from the New American Standard today, and and that word, uh, the New American Standard translates it as mystery. Now, here's the background of that word mystery. That word is not actually a translation from Greek. It's a transliteration that just takes each of the Greek letters and brings them over into English. Uh, In Greek, I believe we would pronounce the word mysterion. And the problem that this transliteration creates is this. The English word mystery and the Greek word mystery have taken on different meanings. When Americans talk about a mystery, we think about something that's just a… it's unknowable. Well, it's a mystery. You know, we'll probably never find out. It's just, a, it's just a big mystery. Or we think of something like a crime, you know, mystery novels, mystery TV shows. We think of something like a crime where careful investigation could help us figure out who the perpetrator is, right? That's what we think of when we think of mystery. But that's not the way that Paul, neither of those, is the way that Paul is using the word mystery here. And so, to illustrate its meaning, I actually want to go over to the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but when the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, here's how they used the word mysterion. Uh, Cam will enjoy this. It's Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It troubles him. If you remember, the dream was of a large statue with the mixed metals of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and he, he doesn't know the interpretation, but God gives the Uh, interpretation to Daniel by revelation. And this is how this word mystery is used, Daniel 2.19. Then the mysterion was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel reveals its interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar this way, as for the mysterion about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysterion, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in latter days. And then Daniel 2, verse 30, I believe, gives us a key to understanding this word. Daniel says, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king. In the Old Testament, according to the rabbis anyway, a mysterion is a divine secret. It's a secret that is only known to God and cannot be discovered by human investigation. It's a secret that only God knows, and we only come to know if God chooses to reveal it to us. And uh, you can see that reflected in the way that other apostles use this word as well. This word is used in the other parts of the New Testament for divine secrets that God has now made known to man through revealing the secret to the apostles. And so, for the remainder of the sermon, I'm going to try to be self-controlled to translate this word as I preach it as secret. I, I think that would be a better translation. And by secret, I mean a divine secret that God has now revealed to mankind. Paul's calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles involved proclaiming a divine secret, a cosmic universal secret that affects all of history and eternity and every person, including you 
and me. And perhaps the best way to work our way through the passage is by posing and answering a number of questions about this secret. The first question is found in verses 2 through 4, and it's this, to whom did God reveal this secret? Look again at verse 2. Paul begins his digression by saying, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the secret, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ. So, to whom did God reveal this secret? Well, the short answer is Paul, to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul begins his digression by saying, if indeed you've heard, and that Greek construction is just a gentle way, it assumes they have heard. It's just a gentle way of the Apostle Paul reminding uh, his readers of his apostleship as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he compares his apostleship to a stewardship uh, in God's household. Now, in Paul's day in the first century, the specific word he uses for a stewardship here, it means a servant in, in like a large estate home or, or on a large farm, uh, uh, and it was a servant who was the household manager. This was a special servant in the first century household whose duty it was to manage the affairs of the house. A good biblical example might be Joseph in Potiphar's house. A good example from Downton Abbey might be Mr. Carson, except Mr. Carson, who also has all the responsibilities of Mrs. Hughes, and and he delegates to other servants who take care of that, but but a Mr. Carson who's over the whole house. That's what Paul means by stewardship here. And this stewardship was given to Paul by God's grace. It wasn't because of any innate virtue or ability in Paul. It was a privilege that God gave him. It was a special assignment that God chose him to be the apostle and, and missionary, if you will, to the Gentiles. Now, a major part of Paul's stewardship, verse 3, is making known something that had previously been a divine secret, but has now been made known to him by revelation. And by emphasizing that it's revelation, Paul is not just communicating uh, the, the nature of the secret, he's communicating what the prophets Joseph and Daniel before him communicated to the kings they stood before. Uh, Paul is emphasizing that this secret wasn't discovered by him based on his own investigation, and it wasn't revealed to him because he's wiser or more virtuous than other people. This was graciously revealed to him by God to be passed down for the good of all. God revealed this secret to Paul, not for Paul's own benefit, but for the benefit of all the Gentile Christians Paul served. And notice verse 4, he says, by referring to this, when you read you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ. When you read is a reference to the public reading of this letter in Ephesus and all the surrounding churches in the region, and I believe Paul anticipated that this letter would be read and that the divine secret he recorded in chapter 3 would be read out loud for all the Gentile Christians in the churches to hear. And the implication of what he says here is this, that whenever you read the book of Ephesians for yourself, or when you hear it read out loud, you can understand the secret God has revealed. So, to whom did God reveal this secret? Well, to Paul first, but not only to Paul. God in, God's ultimate goal was that you and I would know the secret as well. How? By reading the sacred Scriptures, which include this record 
of Paul's insight into the secret of Christ. Which brings us to our second question, and the second question is, when was this secret revealed? Well, Paul says, verse 5, in other generations it was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So, from the time of creation to the time of Christ, God kept this secret to Himself. And one of the most important words in this paragraph for understanding this secret, it hangs on our interpretation of that one little word in verse 5, the word as. Now, in Greek, the word as can be used in one of two ways. First, it could be used in the sense of contrast. This secret wasn't known at all in the past, but now it's been made known. Or the word as can also be used in the sense of degree. This secret was somewhat known. There were clues about it previously, but it was nowhere near as fully known and understood as it is now. And it's that second sense, the sense of degree, that I believe Paul is using here. Uh, remember that Christ is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Well, the coming of Messiah, uh, that wasn't a secret in the Old Testament. There's over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And so, you can hardly call the coming of the Lord's Christ a secret if by secret you mean that His coming wasn't known of as, at all. Uh, it's not that no one knew anything about Messiah's coming before He came. But what Paul is communicating is, he, is this, um, no one began to understand the riches of the glory of what Christ would accomplish when He came. You see, the Old Testament predicted that there would be salvation and hope for Gentiles in Israel's Messiah. But none of those Old Testament passages gave even a hint that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together in a new spiritual entity called the church. There was no hint that the Gentiles would be indwelt by the Spirit of God. There was no hint that the veil of the temple would be torn in two, or even that God would allow the temple to be destroyed because of this new entity called the church. Uh, there was no hint that the Gentiles would enjoy full equality with God's chosen people. But now, the riches of what Christ accomplished for Gentiles, it's been revealed to the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets by the Spirit. But precisely, what is this secret? I've actually already kind of let it out of the bag, but the third question I want to pose here is, what is this secret? I've been talking about to whom God revealed it, when it was revealed, but what's the big secret? Well, in this passage and in the rest of Scripture, there are actually two interconnected answers to what the secret is. The big answer, the primary answer, the, the, the answer that all young Christians need to learn first before moving on to the other answer is that the big secret is uh, in chapter 4, the secret of Christ. God's best-kept secret is a person, the person of Christ. He is God's best-kept secret, not in the sense that God never told us He was sending Messiah, but that God didn't fully reveal all the riches of what Messiah would accomplish. This, by the way, is why one of the worship songs in our repertoire as a church is, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We just, we just sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, and that whole song is dedicated to the life of Christ, the Lord's Christ. It's, it's dedicated, if you view that song 
through the lens of the Old Testament, that whole song is dedicated to, in poetic form, uh, revealing that God's secret in Christ and what Christ would accomplish, which is why we sing it as a church. But there is a more precise answer about this divine secret, even more precise than it being about a person, the Lord Jesus, and Paul explains that precise answer in verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, I believe the main point Paul would want us to hear about God's great secret is that it's a person, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, but from time to time in his letters, Paul also refers to one aspect of the gospel or one part of what Jesus accomplished as a divine secret. Allow me to illustrate what I think Paul is doing conceptually. Uh, For those of you who like military history, what was one of the best-kept military secrets uh, in in military history? Well, I would venture to say that that one of them that has to be up there is D-Day, right? The location and the timing of D-Day. That has to rank near the top, especially when you consider how many people are involved, were involved, and how, many, how, many, uh, how easily it would have been for the Germans to, to find out what was going on. Well, uh, one of the great, that's one great secret, like timing, location, but if you study D-Day, uh, D-Day, you learn that there were many parts to that plan, right? There were many secret parts to that larger plan. For example, one part of the plan is whether or not the Allies were going to use paratroopers and when and where those paratroopers would drop, and what their mission would be once they landed. That was all a secret within the much larger secret of the invasion. Well, I believe you have a similar thing going on here. Paul zeroes in on one specific part of God's secret plan, and it's a specific part that is of great interest to all Gentile saints, namely that through Christ, we Gentiles have become fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of God's promises through Christ. Now, to fully appreciate the wonder of that, you have to remember how things had been for the Gentiles for thousands of years. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people through whom he would put his glory on display, and God's intention is that all the people of the earth, all the Gentile nations, would be blessed uh, through Israel and specifically through Israel's Messiah. But if you were a Gentile in the Old Testament and you wanted to become a true worshiper of Yahweh, you had to become a full-fledged proselyte. If you were a man, you had to take on the sign of the covenant. You had to join yourself to Israel. You had to worship in Jerusalem. And no matter how sincere or devoted you were, that dividing wall that separated you as a Gentile from the Jews in worship and that separated you from coming too close to the temple proper, that remained, uh, and it, it created a separation. But Christ changed all that. Gentile believers are now fellow heirs of God's inheritance. We are fellow members in God's family, and we are now partakers of all the spiritual promises God made to His people. Though there are plenty of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, there is not one hint that Messiah would bring Jews and Gentiles together in a new spiritual entity called the church. Uh, That was a complete secret 
but now God has revealed the centrality of the church in His eternal plan, and He's done it through revealing it to the prophets and apostles of the New Testament. And we Gentiles, who were once far off and separated, we have been brought near to God and His people. Let's pray.